Welcome to the 79th episode of Total Pod Mode, your weekly comedy gaming podcast. My name is Will, and I also go by Hoodafunk, and I'm joined here by my good friend, co-host, and fellow gaming enthusiast, James, aka Mr. Bames. What's going on, everyone? Coming up this episode, we've got our regular games catch-up, followed by the weekly gaming news, where we discuss release news, or perhaps lack of release news, from Sony, the troubled development and eventual release of Ubisoft's Skull and Bones, and we round off the news section with our thoughts on the potential future for tabletop games like the hugely successful Baldur's Gate 3. But before all of that, let's crack on with the socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pop Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on X by searching for at Total Pop Mode, or one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPF. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. Okay, James, time for the catch up. What have you been playing this week? The short answer is not a lot. Okay, <laughs> all right. Outside of our completionist corner game, which we'll get to later, I have not played a huge amount of anything, really. So uh, your your aspirations of completing Baldur's Gate 3, potentially, by uh, this episode haven't been met. Yeah, no, no, it wasn't to be this week. Haven't played anything at all of that. So the only thing really that I will talk about this week is a very, very, very quick foray that I had into Lies of P, purely because uh, this week at the time of recording, a... Um, collab with Wolong thing came out. In Wolong there were Lies of P weapons and stuff. Lies of P got the give back now. I thought that that was like a simultaneous collab. I thought that P was going to get his new weapons at the same time as I was able to walk around Wolong with my umbrella. It didn't happen like that. So that came out I think on Valentine's Day. Oh right okay okay. So it's like one set of armor one hat and one weapon that you can't dismantle. It's like a special weapon but it's basically a glaive from Wolong. Does it copy the moveset of the glaive from Wolong? Uh, I haven't used the glaive enough in Wolong to say that, but I would imagine so. The, the moveset looks very Wolong-y. Fine, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what you really want to see. Lots of spinny bits, lots of jumping around and stuff. Um, really cool, but that's actually kind of all I've done except for completionist corner game i think the um lies of p stuff is slightly better than the wolong stuff was could that potentially be just because you like lies of p more uh there is that but it's also i think i use the stuff in lies of p more i played for 10 15 minutes and that's more than i used the lies of p stuff in wolong sure thing because it wasn't specced to my stats so i was just right, like oh that's okay. really cool nice so was there any additional content or exclusive missions or anything like that as part of the crossover or was it just armor sets and weapons it's just armor sets and weapons in both cases i believe okay Okay. So yeah. I wondered if Wolong had like a special Lies of P mission or something. I don't know. I'm kind of thinking back to I guess like the Monster Hunter World Witcher collab where you yeah. had the whole I mean that was yeah, that, that was, was a high effort that was collaboration. Killer Lesh. Yeah. yeah, no, nothing like that that I can remember playing. And I've a hundred percent of both of them, so I am mm. confident in saying it's not there. Fair enough. Other than that though, mate, that is uh really all I've got to talk about. So how about you? What have you been playing this week? So um I'll be honest, I haven't also been playing a great amount either this week. I think that I'd be covering old ground if I was to go over any of the time that I've spent this week playing on Tekken 8 or Pal World. Safe to say I've been having a really good time in those games, but I don't really have any news as such to discuss. But what I did want to talk about as part of my catch-up this week is a game that I have been watching a lot of, and I will say, at the time of recording, 
about 30 minutes prior to the time of recording, I did actually add this game to my Steam library. It is currently sat on fully installed. So the moment this podcast flicks off, <laughs> I will be playing this game. But uh, I've got to say that the game that I'm going to be talking about in my catch up this week, I haven't played yet. <laughs> oh, there we go. A little bit of a prequel into what's going to go down. <laughs> yeah i like that yeah. i like that phrasing it's a prequel catch-up yeah, yeah yeah yeah. i'll actually have the real catch-up and maybe even a sequel who knows uh in, a, in an episode or two well the suspense is killing us buddy say the name of the game what is it ah so the game <laughs> yeah i probably should get onto that it's uh it's helldivers 2 helldivers 2 join the helldivers become part of an elite peacekeeping force which was a game that we got a little bit of a peek at at the recent Sony showcase. And it's a game that I've had my eye on for a while because I was getting very, very strong Starship Trooper vibes from this game. Right. As well as looking at the gameplay, slight Earth Defense Force vibes. Not so much in terms of the settings and the environments, but more in the fact that you appear to be a trooper working in a small squad of other troopers, going around and attacking massive amounts of what look like bug aliens, essentially. Uh, a few other enemies as well that feature in in the game are kind of like necro robots robots fused with corpses i guess this is kind of my impression of them for people that are fans of like warhammer 40k you'll definitely be getting some sort of a similar vibe from some of the enemies that i've seen in the game and all in all it looks like a game that has a very simple premise it very much like earth defense force is just about attacking a massive amount of enemies on the screen using a huge variety of weapons and different elements of the game to achieve blowing up all the enemies that you need to in that level nice. there's not really much beyond that from what i gather um i'm sure that there is an overarching storyline and things but that is the core gameplay element right there nice does it have classes like a defense force does do you know or is it sort of just a stat line? So I believe it's more affected by the equipment that you choose to wear. There may well be classes in it. As I say, a lot of the time that I've spent watching the videos has been more gameplay focused of the actual uh, planet landings and things. But I do understand that there's different grades of equipment that you could have. So far, I've seen light and medium, and I assume that that will affect a variety of things in the game, like your movement speed and which weapons you can handle, maybe. Yeah. The key difference just appears to be that you can pick from a huge array of weapons, much like Earth Defense Force, and equip whatever you want, really, to take on the enemies that are in the level. And you will need different grades of weapons to take on different things. Certain aliens will have, like, armor carapaces and things that you'll need to explode with either, like, a rail gun for instance or maybe some explosives uh, other things are more soft and mushy and can be taken out with more conventional fire but it looks like you'll be picking and choosing between different weapons and equipment throughout the game things like force shields and things to protect you from enemy attacks uh, and even a jetpack in the game is uh, is a possibility so there's quite a few different things that you can build in and change your loadout to make it feel like there's different classes in a way if you're in a squad of four players the diversity in terms of the equipment and weapons you can have will kind of emulate classes I suppose you can have a kind of a, a tanky character if you wanted it you can have a more maneuverable light arms but has more tactical warfare even things like artillery you can call in airstrikes by throwing grenades and things like that it's all possible fair play i look forward to teams of forward like using the meta build everyone i don't think that this game is going to be one of those games which emphasizes too much on a meta build i think that it's more of a game that's for sort of fun and customization sort of thing i think that based on the fact that it seems to be at this point purely pve i don't think that people are going to be worrying too much about that the game doesn't seem like one of those games that emphasizes that too much or at least not from what i've seen so far 
another cool element of the game that I like is whenever you respawn, you come down in a sort of a drop pod, which you can control slightly. Your guys will be able to call you back in as a new reinforcement. And when you hit the ground, you can land that pod on different structures. You can also land that thing on enemies in the game. And if there is a really tough enemy with a really hard armor shell, you can actually gain a huge tactical advantage by just crashing your pod straight through it in order to give your guys a real leg up in the fight. Solid use of the environment in the game and uh, assets that you might not be able to use normally. Exactly. And it definitely seems to have a very strong co-op leaning as well. Like I said, you can be calling in reinforcements and getting your buddies to help you like that. You can also support your teammates in reloading their weapons, which is an interesting factor. So if you've got heavy arms guy that's loading rocket launchers in, you can effectively double their fire rate with things like a rocket launcher by standing by them and just helping them reload. So there's little abilities and things that you can do that suggests to me that this one's got a very strong co-op focus maybe more so than nerf defense force which obviously is very much intended to play with multiplayer but unless you're very specific classes you don't tend to interact with other players beyond just shooting the things that they're also shooting you know <laughs> <laughs> but that rocket launcher reload thing sounds like it's quite interesting if they're thinking yeah. of things like that it begs the question what else they might have in the game that's co-op orientated exactly yeah. my point and I mentioned earlier as well that this game had sort of Starship Trooper vibes, and that definitely rings true. Uh, I think the main three taglines of this game is freedom, peace, and democracy. And you are bringing that to Super Earth, which is the planet that you reside on. <laughs> Super Earth! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and you are bringing that to your citizens by invading other planets and killing the indigenous species. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to landing on other planets and reclaiming what is rightfully ours, apparently. It's very much got that Starship Troopers-style vibe of we're acting as if these are like acts of terrorism that are befalling humanity after we've established ourselves on various planet colonies and have done nothing but war with the uh, indigenous <laughs> species, yeah. as I said earlier. So, yeah, it's, it's very tongue-in-cheek. It's quite campy in a lot of its presentation as well. Uh, a lot of the promo for this was hilarious. If you haven't seen some of the reveal trailers and pre-rendered stuff, it's really funny. Just go back and watch it. It's a real laugh. <laughs> No, I mean, it sounds quite interesting, man. There's going to be a lot to this game. They're going to pack a lot into it. But as I said, it's a very simple premise. It's basically land on the planet, kill bugs and other species, and uh, go on about your day. I think that there are a few elements to the missions, like rescuing hostages or capturing certain points and clearing out areas. So there's a bit more to it than Earth Defense Force in that sense as well. But at its core, it's just kill a lot of things blasting and gunning and i'll get into it more next week look forward to it man so with the catch up wrapped up let's move on to the weekly gaming news okay so this week our first article gathered from game rant and ign sony has some disappointing news for playstation 5 gamers not more bad news Bad news for fans of Sony-produced games such as God of War, Spider-Man, and The Last of Us. Sony boss Hiroki Totoki explained in a recent financial call regarding first-party software, we aim to continue to focus on producing high-quality works and developing live-service games. Boo, live-service games. Yeah, it was Michael Transaction in that meeting as well. Shout out <laughs> Michael to the Transaction. <laughs> but... While major projects are currently under development, we do not plan to release any new major existing franchise titles next fiscal year, like God of War Ragnarok and Marvel's Spider-Man 2. Ooh, interesting. Given the list of PS5 exclusives is still pretty short, and given, in my opinion, their historic domination of popular exclusive titles over their competitors, Microsoft and Nintendo, it's pretty surprising to hear that we have no large-scale releases this year. 
No Ghost of Tsushima sequel, no Horizon third entry. However, there are still some PlayStation 5 exclusives to look forward to releasing this year, such as the Final Fantasy VII Rebirth coming out on the 29th of February, and Rise of the Ronin coming out on the 22nd of March. Yeah, Rise of the Ronin looks good. I have no time for this Final Fantasy VII reloaded stuff. <laughs> reloaded is not the major. Whatever the hell it is. <laughs> Rebirth. No, I mean I mean all of them though. Like uh, remastered right. is what I should probably mean. I think my main issue that I take from the Final Fantasy VII reboots is the fact that, as we've discussed at length on previous podcasts. This hasn't come as one whole thing. It's come as exactly. one very stretched out threequel, yeah. which I'm not really into. All of which cost full price as well. Yeah, exactly that. It's it's a big put off. It's yeah. a lot of money to invest. What I will say, though, is I really enjoyed Final Fantasy VII. Um, I've got a lot of time for that game. And I will 100% play all three of those games at some point down the line when they actually come as a collection and it's reasonably priced. But until that day, I'm not into paying and playing the game of waiting years and years for this thing to come out. I'm going to do this one like Game of Thrones, and I'm just going to wait for the entire thing to come out and then session it over the course of like three months or something right, yeah. like that. <laughs> Uh, I think that's probably the way to do it. And I'll probably find that that's the more enjoyable way for me to play it, personally. I'm not into waiting years for another sequel to come out. And probably at that point having to play the original one just to remember everything that was going on yeah no i agree i think if you're going to do it that's the way to do it because then it all feels like one game like it should have been originally yeah exactly yeah but rise of the ronin looks good we've spoken about that at great length too but that one is something to look forward to from what i've seen obviously not being a playstation 5 owner myself um i'm just looking forward to getting more eyes on this one and seeing what it's about i'm not going to be too worried about spoilers i think i'm just going to check this one out and uh I think that this game for me is going to be more about the gameplay than the storyline. Who knows, though? It could could be a banger. In which case, if I get too into it, I might just need to stop my watch through and just pause it. I have done that for a few other games over the years as well. I've started to watch, watch maybe the first hour, and then thought, you know what, this is too good. I do need yeah. to buy this myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can keep our fingers crossed, mate, because I did read another article this week where um, I think it was Hiroki Totoki. It might have been Mate who's standing in for Jim Ryan until you know the interim guy for jim ryan's post saying that um a new revenue stream for them might be releasing their releases on pc at the same time ah okay well that's exciting news so that's something that might make me a bit more interested but for the time being i'm in the same boat as you i don't own a ps5 so i don't really have much skin in this game i'm just curious to see how uh, rise of the ronin looks like you say although i don't think i'll watch um story stuff i'll probably just have a look at gameplay see mm, if i like the mm. look of it well so far we certainly do both like the look of it Okay, so I think it's time we moved on to our second article this week. A Ubisoft CEO has dubbed Skull and Bones the first quadruple-A game, but beta players don't seem to agree. As part of a Q&A session, Ubisoft were questioned as to whether the price tag of $70 or £50 for the base game was justifiable, given the game's leanings towards live service elements such as premium currencies, battle passes, and seasonal events. Which, to be fair, are in plenty of other games that are also meeting that $70, £50 price tag as well. Call of Duty has been doing it for years. However, I think that this one will definitely have much more significant live service elements as well. The events, I think, is going to play into this game more so than Call of Duty. If they do it right. Ubisoft CEO Eve Guillermo defended the price tag by going on to say, you will see that Skull and Bones is a fully fledged game. So is, is a fully fledged game, a, a, is that a brag? You'll see, <laughs> yeah, our, you'll no, see our game's yeah. finished. Like, <laughs> oh, tell us more, Eve. It's a very big game, and we feel that people will really see how vast and complete that game is. That also translates to we finished it. Yeah, okay, good stuff, Eve. 
Yeah, it, I mean, honestly, these don't really sound like things that... Uh, I mean, vast is, is certainly one thing, but that doesn't necessarily imply quality. Exactly. Uh, it just implies that the game is finished. And we'll be the judges of that. Thanks very much, Eve. I'm ready, I'm ready. No, you ain't. He goes on to say, it's a really full, triple, even quadruple A game that will deliver in the long run which is a very confident stance from the Ubisoft CEO. However, other beta players online seem to disagree. And after seeing footage of the game myself, I really can't say I have much faith in this one. This is another game that I have watched to some degree uh, this week through various online sources that have managed to get early copies of the game. And one thing I will say is AAA to me implies that a game is going to be very polished, both in terms of graphics, gameplay, and just overall game design. And it's going to be an accessible game that controls well. And I'm not really seeing a lot of those elements playing out in this game. The way that these ships move in the game seems very arcadey, even more so than Black Flag. Ships will literally turn on a dime. You can just go from stationary to almost doing a very clean 180 in your ship um, when you're steering and moving around certain areas of the game. The resource collecting and bartering systems in the game don't look particularly interesting to me. The resource gathering certainly seems quite boring in the game. They're just timing-based mini-games that have different animations but all seem to play off of the same timing. So I can't really get behind that. It looks very uninspired and for the fact that this game has been developed for so long it's such a shame that it's come out in this state because you can tell that this game has had so many troubles during its development it's very very evident well i mean i just have a problem with this statement in general i mean i was taking the piss out of it while you were quoting it but he didn't say anything in the whole statement all he said was yep you'll see it's a big game it's it's fully fledged it's big did i mention it's big it's got missions and you can do in it it's a big game it's really full <laughs> yeah it's like like dude assassin's creed odyssey is a big game and i i actually have a lot of time for that game but it's not exactly a beloved classic is it i think that this has been picked up this is obviously someone that's just very excited about their game and part of me does understand that people have jumped on the fact that he said quadruple a game and wrapped it around the fact that this was a question asked around does it justify the price tag well to be honest man i think they just he's probably excited because he needs to hype it because they need a win ubisoft I think that's probably more what it comes they down do. to. They really need a win. And this is a quote taken from a CEO that got very carried away. And this is one of their big releases that they've sunk a lot of time and money into. And they really need this one to pay off. Yeah. From what you've described, it doesn't sound like it's doing a great job so far. Although, caveat, it is only in beta still. I mean, at the time of recording, it is it is taking a full release tomorrow. So. <laughs> oh, right. Really? Is that soon? Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. They ain't <laughs> so, got much time to sort it then. <laughs> Oh, man. Hey, James, man, if we would have bought the, uh, the £100 edition, we would have been able to play this game back on the 13th of February. Damn. I'm gutted that I missed out on that. Do you know, like, real talk, I was actually looking forward to this game because I do like me a pirate game. But I've yeah, seen, yeah. like, from the little I've seen, it's just, I think I'll wait for it to be on sale and even then maybe give it a miss, you know what I mean? It's one of them ones at the moment. Even the mini cutscenes that appear between you doing actions look quite unpolished, especially for a game that's being labelled with a quadruple-A title. I'd at least expect the short cutscenes for transitions and things to actually look really good, but they just don't. I can't speak to the cutscenes so much because I haven't seen much of that. But for me, the gameplay, I agree with you. It looks like it was designed for a game to come out in 2018, which was what this originally was meant to, right? Mm, yeah, yeah, it and really does look stuck back in that time. I could probably accept it more if it was a £35 game. So what, $50 game? I think that's the problem with this, is the fact that it's a quadruple-A game is is more so because of how much money they've sunk into this yeah. thing, I think, more than anything. I think is what well, that's a summary of, and 
That's probably not what Eve meant by that statement at all, but that certainly is what I'm taking away from this. Regardless of the price tag, people will stretch to that price tag if the game is good. Yeah. There's not like either of us have had a problem spending that amount of money on a game that's good previously. But this one, I, I think to stretch to this price tag for this one, even going into this knowing what you're getting, I think for a lot of people is still something they won't be willing to do. And I think that only real fans of the series, only really people that have been desperate to get into this will buy into this. And absolutely fair play to them. I, you know, I don't think that this looks like a bad game. This just doesn't look like a game that is a current game made to a quadruple A title, that's for sure. Which is why it's drawing, I think, a lot of kind of like snarky comments and uh, people covering it over the news in the manner that I'm doing exactly right now. Bit of ridicule. Yeah, exactly. But I think that, holy, if this game does turn out to be worth it, and with these live events and live service elements, if they are going to push those and actually really make good use of those in some sort of unique way, then hey, it may well justify that price tag. But It also does draw into question if they are really going to put that as their focus, then why, like a lot of other games, haven't they just gone with a free-to-play model? Yeah, and the thing is, do you trust Ubisoft with that as well? Got to ask the question. 100% not, but I think that that is the question that does beg answering if you're going with a game that has these live service elements so embedded into it. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said they've spent a lot of money on this game, they need to recoup some of it. (laughs) I think it's as simple as that, honestly. And the thing is, is even if you were to make this a free-to-play game and did have lots of currency and battle passes and weekly challenges and all that stuff, there's still no guarantee that you're making that money back. They do need baseline sales as well. Exactly. So I guess the main takeaway from this article should be for those that are really keen to finally get their sea legs acclimatized. Now is the time to do it, I guess. And be excited for my game that has content. Okay, time to move on to our third and final article of the day from PC Gamer. Hasbro has made about $90 million by letting Larian make a D&D game. Solid. Wizards of the Coast parent company Hasbro announced it has earned roughly $90 million through its licensing deal with Larian for Baldur's Gate 3. Hasbro has said in its full-year financial report that its overall revenues declined 15% due to a 19% drop in its consumer products segment and a 31% decline in its entertainment segment. However, the Wizards of the Coast and digital gaming segments were actually up 10%, in quotes, driven by an increase in licensed digital gaming revenue, and this is apparently partially in thanks to Baldur's Gate 3. I would suggest uh, more than partially. Well, I did hear that the other game mentioned this was some sort of Monopoly spin-off as well, but apparently is putting in the money, and honestly, like, I assume that that's some sort of mobile game. It that wouldn't surprise probably, me yeah. whatsoever if that's also making bank. But... Monopoly's dope, so yeah. But we, we cannot deny uh, the excellence that is Baldur's Gate 3. The average concurrent player count over the past 30 days is nearly 131,000, and it's still sitting in the top 10 most played games on Steam, which is a huge achievement given that the game is a single-player fantasy RPG that was released over six months ago. So my question to you, James, is are we about to see a rise in D&D-inspired games given the profitability of Baldur's Gate 3 for both Larian and Hasbro? Is there money in their Mar Hills? Potentially, but if, if my understanding of their deal is correct, I think Larian has the rights to pretty much all of it. So I don't know if anyone else can make any other D&D game in the Sword Coast lore, at least. No, not in the Sword Coast lore, but I think in terms of the gameplay elements, they can absolutely lift a lot of them. Gameplay elements, yeah, for sure. Um, and the issue they're going to run into there is that Baldur's Gate 3 is like really good, and I don't know if anyone could do it better. That, that's the issue you're going to have. And it took them years, even with prolonged periods in early access as well. This game was out in early access for ages before it actually released. Exactly. I would love to see a rise in these games, 
but I wouldn't expect to see too many things tackling Baldur's Gate 3 itself because that is just so well done, so complex. As you say, so much was invested in it that outside of Larry and making a new Neverwinter Nights, I'm hoping they do Neverwinter Nights 3 because that would be dope. But outside of that, I don't see anything coming close, unfortunately. But I'd love to see people try and prove me wrong. I really would. I think that's a very fair comment. However, I definitely can see a future where there is a sudden spike in popularity for these games, given the success of Baldur's Gate 3, in a similar way uh, that we've seen a lot of fantasy action-based, almost kind of Dark Souls-esque games following the release of Elden Ring. It would be cool to see, as you said, someone actually attempt to do something that rivals Baldur's Gate 3. Yeah, well, I mean, these games have been popular for quite some time, and there's always been various things, Pillars of Eternity, to mind instantly i don't know if they'll ever be able to compete with uh, Baldur's gate 3 that's the thing nothing has drawn as much attention as Baldur's gate 3 so far i do agree with you those games are still alive and kicking in various forms but nothing has quite reached that peak of success that Baldur's gate 3 did no not for years but hey give it a go someone we'd love to see it so that kind of wraps up the news for this week i think we're ready to move on to completionist corner here we go for the completionist's corner So this week, aspiring detectives James and I decided to visit the streets of LA to solve crime, bring justice to criminals, and clean up corruption by playing through Rockstar's LA Noir. The game was released back in 2011, and to my knowledge, neither of us have actually played this game at all, so we've definitely taken our sweet time getting around to picking up this one. Well, your knowledge is incorrect, good sir. Oh really? Have you actually put some time into this previously? I have played this in the past. I wouldn't say I've put some time into it. I've done three cases, I Oh think, fine, okay, okay. Which ironically is Act 1 in the vanilla game. Right, okay. Um, but I didn't remember any of it, it was years and years ago. I kind of remembered bits and bobs that we'll get into later, but other than that i know nothing i don't know about these how it ends how it even gets it going or anything like that i just played a little bit of it okay okay so for the viewers at home la noir is set in 1945 los angeles usa and follows the story of a man called cole phelps recently discharged from the army during world war ii and now back home stateside Cole is now the police patrol officer who's working the beat and looking to work his way up the ladder to the rank of detective now we won't cover all the cases in this game as they are fairly episodic and self-contained. However, we'll pick up on any key story points and developments as we follow the story along, and much of the fun of playing this game is actually figuring out the ins and outs of the crime scenes and unravelling the mystery, so we'll make sure that listeners can still play the game after listening with some of the mysteries still uncovered. But not the key plot points, so... You've been warned. Our story begins with Cole and his partner Ralph Dunn driving down an empty street in downtown Los Angeles, where they receive a radio call to perform an assistive evidence search following a reported shooting. Cole and Ralph arrive outside a nearby alley where they are greeted by a homicide detective who goes by Floyd Rose. Floyd tells us that they haven't been able to locate the murder weapon, but doesn't seem too bothered about this case, telling Cole and Ralph that the victim was a lowlife and he wasn't expecting much to come of this investigation. Cue tutorial mission, or tutorial series of missions, really. But this is our first crime scene investigation. Certainly is. And the way that this game goes about teaching us some of the key crime scene investigations is actually by using sound cues in the game, which is something that the game uses to indicate that you've either stumbled across a clue or even in some cases during witness interrogations, you've answered a question right or you've pressed them when or you wrong. needed to. Yeah, or wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. 
And it also gives you little hints as to when you're kind of done with the crime scene or when you're even leaving the crime scene, the music will just straight out cut out. I find those ones a little bit hard sometimes, though, because you still get some ambient like music sometimes. There is a lot of slow ambient music in the game, and some of it does sound a bit like the chimes that play when you're discovering something. So, yeah, it can be slightly off-putting. It also does it sometimes on um, clues that you've already looked at. So you need to be careful. It's a different noise, yeah. but it can get you. And what I like about I like the, the holding and the manipulating evidence and things like that is that you can do it with objects that are just completely random and have nothing to do with the case. <laughs> yeah. um, the game will always tell you, but it's just quite funny. You just pick up a, like a, an empty crisp packet or something and Cole's looking at it and he goes, incidental, nothing. <laughs> yeah. You're just like, no, man, this is important. <laughs> Cigarette packets, uh, random beer bottles off the ground. You can pretty much pick up most of the objects in the game and examine them. Yeah, you can also grab like dead bodies and like move their heads around sometimes. Flap their arms and shake their face. It's quite funny. (laughs) (laughs) And after you've discovered clues in the game, you use a little black notebook that Cole has to record things like the evidence that's been discovered, key people in the investigation, locations that you can visit, as well as questions that you can ask potential witnesses or people that you need to investigate. Very useful tool, this. It's pretty much a core part of the game. And the main way that I was using to keep track of all the various pieces of evidence and things that you find. Because in some of these cases, there can be a lot of things to keep track of and names to remember and things like that. Some of the later ones, for sure, yeah. Back to the alleyway. After searching the alley, Cole is able to spot the murder weapon in the reflection of an open window, showing that the gun was discarded on the roof of a nearby building. Cole scales the building using a drain pipe and manages to recover the murder weapon, a revolver. Our partner Ralph is impressed we found the gun and is ready to call it a day. But our Cole is an overachiever and he wants to demonstrate his initiative by pursuing the case a little further at least. F***ing nerd. Teacher's <laughs> pet. He's definitely got that vibe about him. He's very tightly strung. Yeah. Our next stop is the local gun store where Cole hopes to identify an owner of the gun using the serial number on the handle. The gun store owner is actually cooperative and allows us to check his ledger for sales. And Cole's in luck. It just so happens that a Mr. Errol Schroeder purchased the suspected murder weapon and alongside his name is his address. Time for Cole to pay a visit to Schroeder along with our partner Ralph. On entering Schroeder's apartment, he is very confused as to why two LAPD officers are showing up at his door just before midnight. Cole questions Schroeder on the gun and Schroeder attempts to find the gun, which he is sure is still inside a set of drawers. However, the gun is predictably missing. Cole and Ralph attempt to arrest Schroeder on suspicion of murder, but before they can cut him off, Schroeder punches Ralph in the stomach and initiates a fistfight with Cole. This puts Ralph straight out. Ralph does not take this punch well at all. He's down for the count. Yeah, Ralph's a little bit of a square. It must be his first day or something. I never really sort of pursued him as square, more just kind of like a lazy, regular beat cop. I don't know. He was so ready to call it a day when we found the gun, and he just spends the rest of this case complaining that Cole won't let him go home. Yeah, and then he just like has a little nap after a little tap in the stomach (laughs) um but yeah the melee fighting then ensues and this is just a little distraction sometimes not the most sophisticated system in the world but it does have intricacies it does in a way yeah Yeah. there are certain things that you can do that there is a bit more effort than say gta because you've also as well as you've got your regular punching blocking and dodging if you time things you can counter it again all things similar to gta you've actually got a grab mechanic in the game that you can use and you can use that to grab them and do moves on them as well as grab them and throw them to the floor as well 
And that is something that I've been doing quite a bit. I've been punching them a lot, and then I throw them to floor, and you just finish them with like a little face punch as they try to get off the ground. And <laughs> that tends to end these fights really quickly. Yeah. I've only been in a couple, I think. And uh, they're always just a nice little distraction, nice bit of fun. They're not the most challenging things in the world. Cole is eventually able to incapacitate Schroeder after the pair trade a few blows. Cole begins to search Schroeder's apartment for more clues, and even finds a very suspect notebook which contains the name of the detective Floyd Rose. The very same detective who we met outside the alleyway as we started looking for the gun. Cole is keen to pursue the case even more, however our partner Ralph has finally had enough of going the extra mile and convinces Cole to stop his investigation. Cole finds the police station and hands over what he has discovered to the real detectives. Man, Ralph, such a buzzkill. Absolutely, man. <laughs> Cole's not ready to give this up so easy. Exactly, we had him. And side note, given that notebook had the name of the detective in it, did we start to stumble upon a case of corruption this early in the game that was suddenly cut short by goddamn Ralph? Almost certainly. In the opening, like, monologue of this game is the LAPD is corrupt it's just like yeah, they're like yeah. basically straight up yeah. says it so it wouldn't surprise me in between the missions of LA Noir, we occasionally see flashbacks to Cole's earlier life and his time as a Marine. Our first flashback shows Cole stepping off the bus to begin his officer candidate schooling, greeted by a foul-mouthed and very pissed-off drill sergeant. You say another word and I'll break your f***ing head and have you in the brig. In this memory, Cole is also joined by two other recruits, Jack Kelso and Hank Merrill. After the flashback ends, it's time for our second mission as a patrol officer. Cole and Ralph are once again cruising in their police vehicle down the streets of LA when they receive a call about a potential robbery in progress and the pair jump into action. As Cole and Ralph pull into the vicinity, they are spotted by the robbers and a gunfight ensues. Thanks to his military training, Cole is able to easily dispatch the suspects with his trusty shotgun. Ralph is a little shook up, but Cole expresses his thanks to him for being a good partner in the shootout, which I wasn't happy with because Ralph did f*** all. Yeah, I didn't really see Ralph during the shootout either. That cutscene seems a little incongruent with what actually happened. Yeah, I think it's meant to show that Cole is a good guy. Time for another flashback. This time with Cole and the two other officers in training we saw in the last flashback, Kelso and Merrill. Much like his present self, Cole is highly ambitious and wants to prove his abilities to lead as a marine officer. Whereas Kelso expresses concern that Cole is only preoccupied with fame and glory and could get others hurt in his pursuits. We cut back once again to Cole and Ralph sitting in their patrol car, where Cole is attempting to dodge Ralph's questions about his time in the military. The conversation is cut short when Ralph notices a man walking down the street who he had arrested previously and is now evading his parole. Cole gives chase, running after the man down an alleyway and following him up onto a rooftop. Cole is taken by surprise by a beauty of a clothesline. Once the suspect manages to break the line of sight, and another fistfight begins. As per usual, Cole comes out on top and manages to knock out and arrest the parole-violating suspect. So, had enough of flashbacks for one day? Well, tough, because here's another one. This one shows a full class of would-be Marine officers, and Cole is called to the front to relay scores on a recent aptitude test. And our buddy Kelso, who always seems to be giving Cole a hard time, seems to be scoring consistently at the bottom of the class. Twos, ones, fours... Out of 10, this is. Back to the present day, or rather back to 1945, where Cole is on foot patrol walking down the street when he suddenly hears gunshots ring out. When Cole arrives on the scene, he discovers a man murdered in the street and shortly after, two more officers, including our partner Ralph, show up on the scene. Cole investigates the body and discovers a layaway receipt for an expensive set of pearl earrings. That's essentially uh, a bit like when you can't afford something, you just slowly pay money towards it in order to pay it off. It's a bit like buying things on credit it's now. It's an IOU, basically. Yeah. We also find shell casings on the ground and a discarded gun in a nearby public rubbish bin. That is a cracker of uh, evidence thing. 
God damn, we've got a murder weapon right then and there, less than five meters away from the body. Amazing. Not the last time this game does this. Do you know what? I'm calling it now. This game has a twist in it where Cold is a corrupt guy and he wants to get into the police force. He started doing all of these crimes on himself, manufacturing them to happen so that he could get promoted to become a detective. He's been the bad guy all along and he's causing all of these things to happen like it's Final Destination or some shit. I like that. <laughs> I agree with part of it. I do think it's going to end up that Cole is somehow a bad guy, but I don't think that's quite how it's going to be. But I like that a lot. We've got to admit, James, the murder weapon being just discarded it's just a little bit convenient. It's a little suspect. Yeah. A little bit convenient, right? And he's always the first one there. <laughs> yeah, first on the call. What the hell's that about? Yeah, interesting. But as I say, we already we found these shell casings and, uh, and a gun in the bin. And uh, we also get our first opportunity to interview a potential witness to the murder. As inside the nearby shoe store is a woman who worked for the murdered man and is a key eyewitness. Whose name was also on top of that, uh, that receipt that we found. Interesting. It was indeed. It was indeed. Yeah. Cue the first of many interview sections with seemingly the same woman's face. Oh, do you think that? You think a lot of the women look alike? I do. I do. The men all seem to have like different faces considerably, but the women, a lot of them like have the same face. I think where a lot of that comes from is a lot of them are playing very similar characters other than maybe a few ones. A lot of the women that we're speaking to are like the wives of husbands yeah, that have exactly. been up to no good. It's 1945 so, after all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But all joking aside, um, the face capture technology, which we sort of get to see in full display in these interview sections, uh, is fantastic in this game, especially for 2011. It's pretty insane. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's a little bit like CGI back in the day. In one way, it was amazing for its time, and in some ways, it still is a little amazing, but it also dates the game in a very weird way as well, given yeah. that we've almost surpassed the need for it. And in a lot of ways, I feel like we surpassed the need for the technology that they've used in this game very quickly perhaps even like you know, just a few years after the game released it's it's a very strange thing it both looks amazing but also dates it in a very strange way yeah i think because it's set in the 40s though i'm kind of about it it, it kind of just all it all pulls together i think it's that maybe it helps ease that uncanny valley thing because it's also set from a different time period it yeah. maybe like helps somehow i don't know so the way that the facial capture technology works in the game is it does seem that they have somehow taken a video of someone's face and unlike a lot of the motion capture technology that's used they seem to have mapped almost the video image of that person's face to a, it's, it's obviously an edited video image, but to the face, because the way it captures cheek shadows and things like that moving, it does have a lot of uncanny valley style to it. You're having a real hard time in some cases not believing that they haven't just transplanted a video directly onto the person's face and then wrapped a 3D model around it. But it really lends to the way that you detect when people are lying in the game. And it also really lends to just the overall tone of the game, because it's slightly kind of of the time acting as well which i really like yeah it's very cool some of the characters are just outright hilarious yeah or just like wow you're a horrible human being <laughs> yeah. i'm so glad that they, i'm putting you away <laughs> yeah it really gives them a chance to flesh out their characters in this and, and speaking of characters some of them are absolutely hilarious um the way that they respond to some of your questions some of the people that you have to interview in the game are really quite funny and i don't know whether that's intentional sometimes i suspect not it's rock some star, of that though, so some of the facial animation stuff can be a little rough around the edges as well. So you can be interviewing someone and they will kind of go into their neutral pose after they finish speaking. And then they will snap to their, oopsie, I told a lie, suspicious looking around face. And sometimes that transition isn't always perfectly smooth. So they'll go from just looking fairly normal to suddenly looking wildly around them and yeah. doing all sorts of weird things with their face twitching and stuff. So yeah, like really looking like one. they're trying to like push out a particularly difficult shit. 
Yes, that's the old one. man that you interview as yeah. part of the case that we're coming out when he is doing his like not sure I told the truth face. He definitely just looks like he sh himself. Yeah, one hundred percent. Then there's a lot of them that do that, and the women <laughs> always look up and to the left or to the right. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Did I do that? Oh, was it me? They're obviously trying to emulate reading that body language sort of thing. It's just funny because it's done with actors, and then you get that whole weird catch twenty two where they're obviously an actor pretending like they're lying but trying to pretend like they're telling the truth which is a very difficult and complex thing to actually emulate yeah. So I think that sometimes it doesn't always come off so well. But whatever the case, I don't really have anything bad to say about this. I, I know, either I'm, find I'm it hilarious it. and I love it, or I find it really compelling and really adds to the gameplay. It's no real in between there. No, I'm all about it, and it makes it very <laughs> like obvious when someone is not being truthful with you, which is nice. And it all lends to this game feeling very unique and stands out as its own thing from Rockstar's roster of other games. I agree. And this lady that we uh, talked to, she's not the best liar in the world. I mean, I think this is still tutorial right so it kind of gives you all the answers anyway because it's teaching you about it they get i think more subtle with their reactions and things later on in the game and there's also some factors that can kind of confuse whether someone's telling a lie or they're just under the influence of drugs for instance yeah um so there's a couple of other factors but yeah these ones are, are very much as james said early on in the game if they're telling a lie they look like they're literally pushing out a poop so from our interview with the shoe store employee, we learned that the murdered man outside had a recent dispute with the owner of a nearby jewellery store, and shortly after he was murdered by the very same jewellery store owner. We get the location of the store from the interview, which adds another location we can visit as part of the case. Cole and Ralph both head to the aforementioned jewellery store to confront the owner about the murder allegations, but before they can stop him, the owner attempts to escape. After a short chase, Trackstar Cole is able to convince the suspect to stop running and be arrested. Yes, by pointing his gun at him. Yeah, and then he fires it in the air. But if you shoot him first, you fail the mission. <laughs> Oh, okay, really? So <laughs> yeah. I think that there are actually later points in the game where you can just make that choice to fire your gun in the air and stop them or shoot them, but I guess this is one where, yeah, they wanted you to... Oh no, I shot him in the back. I mean, it's fair enough. You can totally do that in some missions in yeah. this game. But not this one. It gives you a mission fail, unfortunately. <laughs> Cole's stellar performance on the case so far has been recognised by Homicide Captain James Donnelly, and he has permitted us to perform the interrogation ourselves. Using the evidence and testimonies we have gathered so far, Cole is able to establish a motive for the murder, the victim was viciously anti-Semitic and the murderer was Jewish, and successfully charge our suspect with first-degree murder of the shoe store owner. Following the interview, Captain Donnelly is so impressed with Cole that he offers to speak to the Chief of Police on Cole's behalf, and before long, Cole finds himself promoted to Traffic Desk Detective. Moving on up, baby. But, James, before we get to that point, uh, I've got to say that the phrase Get back in there and raise some lumps, boy! I need a confession! is going to be burned into my head for the rest of my life because the confession to make is that I was very much struggling with what evidence to use on this because at this point in the game I didn't really understand the actual difference between the three options that you get when you interrogate someone whether you tell them the truth you doubt it or you accuse them of lying um for the listeners Truth is obviously you recognise that whatever you've heard is factually true. The person you're speaking to usually doesn't look like they're shitting themselves. But if they do, then it's usually either one of the two, which is doubt or lie. If it's doubt, that implies that something doesn't seem right about it. You have a strong suspicion that they are lying. However, you don't have any evidence to back that up. So in that case, you're more sort of pressuring them into a confession or trying to 
admit some more crucial evidence to you. Whereas if you accuse them of lying, you always need to have a piece of evidence that you've discovered from the crime scene or from speaking to someone else that you can shove in the person's face and catch them out on their lie, in which case you provoke them to give more information to you. That's the long and short of how the interrogations work, and I did not understand how that functioned in the game at that point. So I was getting screamed at by Captain James Donnelly every time I failed this thing. (laughs) Eventually I was able to do it, but it was probably on my like third or fourth attempt because I think initially I went for lie and picked the wrong thing. Then I went for doubt and then that's not right either. <laughs> so then I, mean, I ended picking up the wrong li- thing is that's impressive that you managed to do that. Because I just I think I just didn't understand really what I needed to what I needed to do. I think there's only three things you can select from in this, and two of them are it- right. So you did, so you did very well to. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I, uh, yeah, I didn't quite get the uh, get what this game was about initially. I was struggling a little bit. After this bit concluded, I then had thoroughly learned how the rest of the game was going to play out, and uh, I knew what I had to do from that point on. So the tutorial did its job, that's the main thing. Yeah. I mean, I I just got a few fails for shooting the guy in the back when he was running away from me. (laughs) I tried to shoot him in the leg to stop him. I didn't realise for (laughs) a while, I'd forgotten that you have to hold your crosshair over him and wait for the bar to fill up to do it. That's right, yeah. So I was like, why is this guy not stopping? I'm shooting the air. Because I remembered that was the thing from when I played before, but I didn't remember you had to do that. So then I shot him in the leg and got a fail (laughs) then i shot him in the head because i was angry (laughs) fair enough fair enough now dressed in a shiny new suit detective cole is working the traffic desk along with a new partner who goes by stefan bukowski love this guy bukowski's a joker yeah he's uh better than our lazy ralph cop buddy from my last although he's just as lazy Yeah, there's there's a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of implied. He gets uh, the piss taken out of him by some of his other detective colleagues in the briefing room. The pair of detectives, Cole and Bukowski, are called to investigate an abandoned car, which appears as if a bloody murder was committed inside of it. The inside of the car is coated in blood. However, there are no signs of a body. During the crime scene investigation, we discover a wallet belonging to the apparent victim, a man by the name of Adrian Black as well as a receipt for the purchase of a live pig made out to someone known as Frank Morgan. First things first, we interview the reporting witness. But despite our best efforts, he doesn't seem to know anything and can't really contribute to the investigation. Our next stop is to drop by the home of our missing-slash-murdered man, where we find and interview his wife. So, at this point in the game, the interrogation plays out much similar to the previous one that we did with the shoe store owner. There's three options of truth, doubt, or lie. But we get introduced to another factor in the game called intuition, which is a type of currency in the game that you can earn by either questioning people correctly, finding various landmarks in the game that you can drive past, completing side missions and various other good detective acts. Yeah, so what that does is it gives you experience and you get a rank up and each time you rank up you get an intuition point. And sometimes you get some other bonuses as well, like unlocking some cars or something like that. New outfits. Hell yeah. Absolutely, yeah. You can get a nice few fancy detective suits in this game. That is very yeah, nice. I've got seven so far. And you can use intuition in the game in a number of ways. You can either use it in the middle of a crime scene investigation to highlight every clue that you need to find in the game, which can be useful for people who maybe want to skip past picking up a hundred random beer bottles in the crime <laughs> scene. Uh, and you can just get straight to finding the clues that you need to. 
I prefer typically to not use it on that unless it's just a massive crime scene and I want to make sure that I've got everything. But I typically have been using my intuition points as part of my interrogations where you can do a kind of who wants to be a millionaire style ask the audience, which makes use of the Rockstar Social Club plugin to the game and will actually take player scores and assign you a 30% of players pick this option, 40% of players pick this option, blah, 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 that sort of thing. You can also do a 50-50 style where you like remove one of the options. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, a few different ways you can use it. Um, all of them quite interesting. I've used it occasionally here and there. I think at least once in a crime scene and at least a good handful of times in some of my later interrogations, trying to decide whether I should be accusing them of lying or just doubting them. What about you, James? I've only used it four times and it was for the achievement. I think you have to use four intuition points with a single witness. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Right. Fair enough. So someone I had asked four questions to, I just did it. Yeah. I was going to say that would kind of be tough to do if you didn't really know what you were doing because you could quite easily just find someone that you don't have that many questions for. It's good to pick someone who's like in the early stages of the quest who you think is going to be key. So I think I did it on, um, well, we haven't got to the quest yet, but um, we're going to talk about a case where there's uh, a young female involved in it who's in hospital at a certain point. I did it on her because I knew that I'd be asking her a lot of questions, basically. Right. Yeah, that's a good opportunity to use it. Yeah. But other than that, I have not used it a single time. I really like the Russian roulette of it. I like the, the pressure builds up and you're like, I know that this could go wrong, but I'm just going to go for it. And so far it's been going well for me. I don't think I've got a single one wrong yet, but early days, early days. From our interview with the wife, we discovered that the victim was apparently cheating on her and was making regular trips up to Seattle to see his mistress. We also discover a lead via a matchbox which takes us to a bar that the suspected victim frequents. In the bar, we talk to a man who is a friend of the victim, none other than Frank Morgan, the man whose name showed up on the receipt for a live pig we found at the crime scene. Using the receipt as evidence to force a confession, Cole ascertains that Frank Morgan had purchased a live pig to help our missing man look like he had been attacked, so that he could disappear to be with his mistress in Seattle. We also learn that our missing man is currently holed up in Frank Morgan's apartment, waiting for money to arrive before he leaves town. At this point, Cole can choose to either let Frank Morgan go or arrest him for conspiring with his friend and faking his death. I arrested him. We're not going to lie to you. Did you? My Cole's going to be a hard ass. Yeah, fair Bit enough. Of a prick. You're doing your, uh, your paragon. You're not cutting him any slack. No, it's the other way around. I'm being like, just like so self-centered. This is like, I'm Cole Phelps. I'm going to arrest you because I can. <laughs> I've been quite violent as well. Yeah, yeah. I kind of got for that from the fact that you shot a man in the leg and then later on in the head as he tried to run away. Yeah. <laughs> kind of imply that. How about you, man? What did you do? Did you let him go? I actually let this guy go. Not for any particular reason. I guess I just wanted to see whether he might show up later on, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah we'll see. If he shows up for you and doesn't for me, then that would be quite interesting. Hey, on the other side of things, he could well show up for you if we ever find ourselves, I don't know, going to the police jail or something. Yeah. Maybe he shows up either way in different scenarios. Who knows? Cole and partner Bukowski then head to Frank apartment to confront the missing man and take him in. On our way there, we also receive a radio call from the department's technical services confirming that the blood inside the car was definitely not of human origin, and is almost certainly the blood of the poor piggy that Morgan bought. Cole arrives at the apartment, and we find our missing man, but before we can cuff him, another short chase ensues before Bukowski manages to stop the suspect at gunpoint, and we arrest him for conspiracy and fraud. Case closed. They put you in jail. Right away. No trial, no, no nothing. Before we move on to the next case, it's worth mentioning that thanks to our amazing detective skills, the mission played out just as we described. However, there are multiple paths that this mission can take if we exhibit some less than ideal police work. 
For instance, if we fail Frank Morgan's questioning by either accusing him of lying when not appropriate, or we fail to mention the live pig receipt which pins into the location of the crime scene, then Colin Bukowski will need to tail Morgan back to his apartment instead, in one of those follow-the-car missions we were literally just talking about, Yeah. as we never actually get him to admit he was helping his friend try and disappear. Cole's approach to detective work will often affect the paths taken to get to the bottom of certain cases. However, for the purposes of our coverage in this episode, and seeing as Will and I are top detectives, we'll be doing our best to cover the case on a best outcome basis to avoid things getting too confusing for listeners. Cole's next case is to investigate a reported case of a brand new car being abandoned in an empty building lot. Our second case on the job that starts with an abandoned car. Colin Bukowski always get the best jobs, clearly. The partners arrive on scene and take a look at the car, which is in good condition other than a missing couple of front wheels and the license plate. The car is also missing one of its decorative Argentinian flags sitting on the hood of the vehicle, And there's an opportunity to interview a witness in this case, an elderly man called Oswald, who apparently saw the car being dumped. And this is the elderly guy we mentioned earlier uh, that looks like he's taking a sh** every time he uh, he lies to us. Which is pretty much every single question, (laughs) everything he says. He's quite deceptive, he's very cagey, this old guy. Grumpy old man. But very busybody, yeah, a proper sort of uh, like a fence peeker, window watcher. But before speaking to the old man, Cole can go ahead and find a few clues on the scene. Things such as a combination wrench, which is property of a car garage called Dewey Bros, which was probably used to remove the wheels on the abandoned car. And we also find a vehicle registration slip confirming that the car was registered to an Argentinian consulate. The witness we mentioned earlier, old man Oswald, tells us he saw three Hispanic men stripping the abandoned car in the middle of the night. Oswald hollered at the three men, causing them to scatter and drive off. If Cole presses Oswald, he will also reveal he got nosy and had a look round the car, finding a notebook which he had been keeping quiet about until Cole started tightening the figurative screws. A look at the notebook shows it's full of male names along with notes such as nice eyelashes, good natured, one entry even has a phone number. Cole uses a nearby phone to call the number which reveals a chilling factor in this case. It appears that the Argentinian consulate, owner of the notebook, is a no good dirty nonce. Cole also phones into the station to get an address for the Dewey Brothers' garage and receives a message saying that the Argentinian consulate, known as Juan Francisco Valdez, is already at the station and demanding an audience with us. He must think we're a little boy. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to keep the consulate waiting for a while. So Cole heads to the Dewey Brothers' garage first, and after listening to a sales pitch by the owner, we head to the tool room and use the wrench we found at the crime scene to identify that it belongs to a man called Gabriel Delgado. Cole also pressures the reluctant owner into giving the home address of Gabriel, but before we head there, it's time to speak to Valdez, the Argentinian consulate, and owner of the abandoned vehicle. In our interview with him, Valdez suspects a disgruntled young worker from the car dealership had actually stolen it, which adds weight to Cole's growing theory that the owner of the wrench is also the thief of the car. Using the notebook as evidence, Cole is also able to get the consulate to admit that he had come on to Gabriel whilst he was at the garage, which had enraged the young man and probably caused him to retaliate by stealing Valdez's car. After laying down the law to the nonsulate, I, I, I mean consulate, Cole and Bukowski head to Gabriel's residence where they find the two missing tires and the Argentinian flag from the abandoned vehicle. So it appears we've been right all along, and Gabriel is our thief. We learn from his girlfriend that Gabriel is out street racing, so Cole and Bukowski set out to capture our suspect. After a set piece where Cole chases Gabriel in a car race through the streets of LA, he damages Gabriel's car enough to force him to stop, where he is swiftly arrested. Another one in the bag for Cole. This case is sealed shut. Time for another flashback. 
This time with Cole and his two fellow Marine officers in training, Kelso and Merrill, preparing for a short period of granted leave. The leave, however, is cancelled when a drill sergeant, and I suspect the same drill sergeant who greeted them off of the bus at the beginning of the game, and who clearly has it out for the underperforming Kelso, cancels everyone's leave on the basis that Kelso failed to clean his rifle properly. Kelso insists that he has done his duties sufficiently, which obviously just earns him more threats from the drill sergeant, and this whole situation leads to Kelso declaring that he's leaving the officer camp and joining another rifle company, and the flashback ends. Cole's final case of this traffic desk chapter involves a car that has crashed into a billboard after taking a nosedive off a small cliff edge only a short distance from the police station. Inside the car were two women, one who claims that she was doped and someone was trying to kill her, however both women survived. After arriving on the scene, we see a distressed woman called June Ballard, a B-movie actress and apparent driver of the car. Before we start the interview, time to see if we can dig anything up from the scene. After investigating, we find a pair of women's briefs that appear torn as if forcefully removed that were found in a bag belonging to someone called Jessica Hamilton, the young woman who was also in the car with June Ballard when it crashed. We also find a letter written to Jessica by her mother, begging her to return home after running away. An officer on the scene tells us Jessica was injured during the crash but is recovering in hospital. The final clue we discover is a movie prop shrunken head that was found jamming the accelerator of the crashed car. Cole then returns to interview our actress June Ballard, and it becomes apparent that she is still under the influence of whatever drug was used to dope her. And during this interview, this was a little bit, I think I, I failed a few of the checks here because I wasn't sure whether she was just f***ing high as a kite or whether she was lying to me. I couldn't tell. I didn't think she was doped at all. I thought it was all a lie. Oh, really? Okay. Because yeah, okay. she gets like super serious and then she's like, oh no, I'm still a little high. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, all right, mate. After Cole presses June, she claims that her and Jessica were drugged by a man called Mark Bishop. After mentioning the torn underwear found in Jessica's bag, June admits that she took Jessica to a casting call with the man she suspects drugged them both, Mark Bishop, but she won't elaborate any further. June also tells us that Mark Bishop, as a film producer, had offered her a role in one of his movies, but he soon withdrew the offer in favour of a more famous actor. June pressed him on this, and she suspects this is the reason why she ended up in a crashed car. Cole and Bukowski pay Jessica a visit in her hospital bed and learn that Mark Bishop did indeed assault Jessica. Jessica confided in June, but June, the cold-hearted person she is, told Jessica that things like this were simply the price of stardom. Jessica tells us she went with June to a building with a mermaid on the front to meet with Mark Bishop. Jessica was given a drink to calm her nerves and soon fell unconscious, and that's the last she can remember before waking up after the crash. As we leave the hospital, we spot June making a hasty exit and decide to tail her into a nearby cafe. In the cafe, we overhear June making threats to her husband, telling him he needs to help her deal with Mark Bishop for drugging and attempting to kill her. June's husband apparently has ties to the mob, so the threat of our suspect being killed is very real. Cole also hears June telling her mobster husband Mark's address, which means it's time for us to leave before the henchmen arrive at Mark's home. Cole and Bukowski race to arrive at Mark Bishop's flat, but we're too late and two henchmen have already arrived and are searching for Mark. Side note, uh, you can actually arrive late to this and the henchmen have already been and gone and you just deal with Mark's distressed wife. It's not what happened uh, when I played through this game, but I was watching some clips of how things can play out and that is one of the things that can happen. That's what happened with mine too. I don't recall there being anyone. Really? You didn't didn't have a little fist fight with two henchmen, no? Maybe you didn't head there like immediately because that's what I did. I just made like a beeline for it. No, I think I went somewhere first. There was somewhere sure else I could go first. I couldn't remember where it is. So in my case, after another fist fight, Cole and Bukowski throw the two men in the back of a police van and decide to investigate Mark's home. Searching for evidence, Cole discovers a picture of two men, one being Mark Bishop, and we later learn that the other man is called Marlon Hopgood, and both men are standing outside Marlon's movie prop shop. 
In the background, we see a mermaid, which matches Jessica's description of the location she was brought to before being drugged and assaulted. We still haven't established a proper motive for Mark attempting to kill June and Jessica, so Cole and Bukowski set off to the silver screen prop store to have a word with Mr. Hopgood to see if he can help provide some much-needed answers. At the prop store, we also learn that Mr. Hopgood, on the odd occasion, holds auditions in the back of the store. As Cole investigates, he finds a bottle of pills that match the description of the doping drug given to Jessica and Jude. We also find a workbench that was used to manufacture the shrunken head that was used to wedge the accelerator of the car in the crash. As if the evidence wasn't damning enough, Cole also notices a suspicious one-way mirror that leads us to the discovery of a secret room with a camera on the other side. Cole returns to interview Hopgood, the owner of the prop shop and through our interrogation we learn that June Ballard had Hopgood record Mark Bishop assaulting Jessica, and June kept a copy of the film. The reason for this was because June was going to blackmail Bishop after he withdrew her movie offer. Bishop, however, was enraged when he discovered that he had been recorded in the act, and this caused him to attempt the murder of June and Jessica. We also learn that Mark Bishop is hiding out at an old movie set somewhere in town, and just as we're about to arrest Hopgood for his part in this heinous crime, we're stopped by a shady vice detective called Roy Earl, who we've seen around the station a couple times before. Roy tells us that Hopgood has been acting as an important vice informer, and despite Hopgood's clear involvement in this sordid affair, Cole can't bring him in for some sweet, sweet justice. As we leave the studio, Cole and Bukowski run into two more unsavoury characters who are working for June Ballard's husband. They're trying to find Mark Bishop before Cole can arrest him, but Cole warns the two mobsters to stay away and that Mark Bishop will be brought into custody. The two men clearly don't like Cole's response because as we pull away, they give chase and try to murder Cole and his partner. Cole manages to lose the pursuers and heads to the movie set where Bishop is supposedly hiding. Cole chases Mark through the set as it begins to collapse and fall to pieces around them. Cole eventually corners Bishop on the roof of the set just as a large group of mobsters show up on the floor below, obviously out for Bishop's blood. Cole shoots his way out of the situation, taking down several mob men and manages to protect Bishop until backup arrives. They'd previously made a deal whereby I'll show you the way out if you just protect me for a little bit. In return for being our prisoner, uh, he wouldn't die. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty fair trade. Exactly, makes sense. But eventually backup arrives, the day is saved, mobsters are all dead, and another job well done for Cole Phelps. And Bukowski. Can't forget Bukowski. Yeah, I kind of did forget Bukowski. I mean, Cole was, let's be honest, really pulling the weight on a lot of these missions. Yeah, but Bukowski's got a cool gangster name. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's true, it's true. I think it's a Polish name, actually. But Yeah, it's probably <laughs> yeah. meant to be Bukowski. Yeah, I think so. So, at this point in the game, the captain of the LAPD traffic department comes directly to the scene to tell Phelps that his exemplary crime-solving skills have earned him a promotion to the homicide desk. What mysteries will Cole uncover when he turns his attention to homicide cases. Will we get to learn more about Cole's past life as a marine officer? You'll have to wait for the next episode to find out, because that's where we're going to leave things for this week. So James, how are you finding the game so far? So far so good, yeah. I'm enjoying it. It's interesting. I do like a good uh, murder mystery, so the cases have been quite fun. I feel like they've been relatively predictable so far, so I'm hoping there's a bit more complexity as the game goes on, but the reactions of some of the people are funny, so even though if you sort of know what's going on, it's just funny, like making people squirm. Yeah, good game. Enjoying it. How about you, man? Yeah, I'm very much enjoying this one as well. As A lot of the positive comments I've mentioned earlier on in this game, um, I'm just finding the game very enjoyable, very varied, uh, despite the fact that a lot of the key mechanics in the game are repeated from mission to mission. Um, the cases make them feel very different. It also feels like each one of these cases has a different set piece, particularly the last one that we covered, crashing around the movie set as it kind of implodes on itself. Just really enjoyed each case, and found them all entertaining in their own way. 
And uh, yeah, thumbs up so far. And with our agreement that we're having a great time in this game so far, I do think it's time to close off Completionist Corner this week. And with that, round off the episode. So before we close, it's time one last time for the socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on X by searching for at Total Pod Mode, all one word. And whilst you're there, you can find me at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. And you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. So thanks everyone for listening this far into the episode. We hope you've had an enjoyable listen and we'll catch you all next week. Until then, goodbye everyone.